Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker is an online advertising network for culture vultures, for people who like books and music and movies and whatnot. If you want to reach people who like books and movies and music and whatnot, go to litbreaker.com and you can advertise on a bunch of great culture sites all at once. Sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, The Believer, Full Stop, etc. Litbreaker.com is where you need to go. You can advertise on all of those sites, on all of the network sites all at once, or you can do it piecemeal. You can pick which sites you want your advertisements to appear on. It's very user-friendly. Litbreaker.com. Check it out. Litbreaker. It's an online advertising network for culture vultures. Go and check it out. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is something and not nothing. This is hopefully a decent distraction. Uh, hello, I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for uh, for listening. Thank you for tuning in. My guest uh, today is Bikmin Nguyen. I believe I'm pronouncing that right. It's a tough one. I think even she would admit that. Bikmin Nguyen is here. Her latest novel is called Pioneer Girl. It's available now from Viking. Uh, I had a great conversation with her, and we're going to be uh, you're going to be hearing it in just a second. I do want to talk about uh, something that happened to me recently. What I witnessed from a distance. Seems like most of the stuff we witness, you know, it's like the whole virtual versus IRL thing. I witness a lot of things via my computer and my telephone. I bear witness in a kind of uh, remote way. But uh, a friend of mine from back in Colorado uh, works in the uh, marijuana business legally because it's legal in Colorado. There is such a thing there. And, uh, you know, he's making a lot of money. People are making a lot of money on pot. Like it's just, I think, the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of uh, a lot of this uh, in the press when it comes to marijuana as a pharmaceutical, uh, as a um, elixir or whatever. You know, whether you're consuming it like a person might consume alcohol, or uh, there's potential 
you know, pharmaceuticals that could be uh, produced using cannabinoids. I think there's some of that being done. There's going to be a lot of money in the business. And I, I feel like uh, Colorado, Washington, what is it, Oregon, D.C., the dominoes are starting to fall, but you're going to start to see uh, a lot of money being made, especially once there can be, uh, like inter, uh, what is it, interstate trading, which I don't think is legal right now. So anyway, a buddy of mine who works in that business is making a lot of money suddenly was given an incredible bonus by his boss with the instructions to go to Las Vegas and gamble. So here I am sitting here in my, uh, you know, relatively sedate domestic situation in Los Angeles. And I get these text messages. He's saying, oh, you know, I'm headed to Vegas. My boss uh, gave me a $30,000 bonus, <laughs> which is incredible to me. And uh, but, you know, it wasn't all for him. Like the boss is a huge uh, gambler, wanted him to play some sports bets. You know, all that kind of stuff. And I got to watch from a distance while uh, a buddy of mine lost all this money over the course of the weekend. I, I knew which bets he was placing. I was watching the games or at least following the scores. And I watched the like tragic flushing of an incredible sum of money, at least it, to me, you know, I guess it's all relative, but $30,000 to lose in a weekend in Las Vegas on sports betting. Seems like fucking uh, tragic. Not to mention, you know, ridiculous and stupid. <laughs> but people like that stuff. I mean, I guess it's like it's a it's a form of like adrenaline based entertainment. It only it's only fun if you win, though. I would feel uh, rotten to the core. I would be devastated if I lost that much money in a weekend. Even if I had it to lose, you know, if I was just rolling in money and could afford to drop huge sums like that, which people do, I don't understand how they can bear the psychology of losing it in that manner. Then again, I could go to Las Vegas and I could lose, uh, say $500 and be like, eh, that sucks, but I'd get over it eventually. So maybe if you're rich enough, and $30,000 uh, to you is like $500 is to me, then it just doesn't matter. I don't know what the moral of this, uh, you know, if you like to gamble, that's fine. If you don't, that's fine. It was just the, probably the most interesting thing that's happened to me in a while, which says something about the content of my day, you know, day-to-day -day existence. <laughs> and it makes me think like, man, is like right now, pot, that's a growth industry. It's like a gold rush. It's like getting in early. It's like getting in right at the dawn of Silicon Valley. Who knows where this is going? Multi-billion dollar business. Get in at the ground floor. Maybe this is it. Maybe I'm missing my window. Then again, uh, there's a part of me that feel, would feel weird about uh, participating in the pot economy. Not because I don't think it should be legal. I do think it should be legal. I think it's ridiculous to criminalize pot if you're going to let alcohol and cigarettes be legal. In that world, you know, whatever. Pot's the least of your concerns. But, uh, you know, wanting to make a living doing something that isn't uh, toxic or doesn't contribute to uh, potentially uh, negative mind states or inertia. You know what I'm saying. I wouldn't want to work in the booze business either. I don't mind that some people do, but it's just not for me. 
I have some ethics. I think I'm, I think I'm talking about personal ethics. I would like to be making a living, putting stuff out into the world that doesn't cause harm. And I think pot can cause harm for some people. They don't get off their ass. They're paranoid. They become antisocial. They fold in on themselves. They eat cereal with their bare hands at an advanced adult age. You know what I'm saying? So that happened. I witnessed it through my telephone getting play by play and Las Vegas too. You know, I could have gone out. I live in Los Angeles. It's four hours away. Um, it, you know, my schedule did not permit, uh, per, you know, parentally and otherwise I, I actually could not make it out. Plus I was fighting a cold. So it was, a, you know, to readjust schedules and to go there, it just wasn't in the cards, uh, pun intended, I guess. But the other thing is that I just fucking hate Las Vegas place depresses me. Didn't used to. I mean, when I was like 19 years old, I liked it. And, uh, I, you know, I would go there and it feel like anything was possible, but the older I get, the less fun gambling becomes. And the more, just the more depressing Las Vegas is. I think Las Vegas for 24 hours is a good idea. I think at hour 25, uh, it all starts to come apart and the dinging of the slot machines and the wasted people spending the last of their paycheck at a, like a roulette wheel becomes uh, crushingly depressing to me. I've never left Las Vegas where I wasn't in a hurry to leave and also hurting in some way. <laughs> like a raging hangover or an empty wallet and the dinging is sort of mocking you and it's like uh, the soundtrack to your growing insanity. And then you go to the airport and the airport has slot machines so there's more dinging there. You guys know what I mean. If you've been there and if you've been uh, defiled by Las Vegas, as you know, most people who go to Las Vegas wind up becoming. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty, and Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest once again is Bickman Nguyen. Uh, her book, a novel, is called Pioneer Girl. It is out there now from Viking, so check that out. Uh, really fun to have her here. Great fun talking with her, and I hope you guys enjoy this. This is Bickman Nguyen, and her novel once more is called Pioneer Girl. I've lived in the Midwest almost all my life, and in 2013, I moved to the Bay Area, and what which was... I love. 
when you love it. You feel, I mean, like you feel like you made the right move. You don't miss the Midwest and think you screwed it up. Well, no, no disrespect to the Midwest because I grew up there and my writing is set there for the most part. And I would not have become a writer without the Midwest. But now that I have lived for a while here in the Bay Area, I never want to leave it <laughs> because I feel so I feel so comfortable and normal here in a way I've never felt ever before. What, what, what is it? What is it? Like culturally, like is it liberal and you're a liberal or is it, um, is it like, a lot, like the, a lot of Asian people where there's not a lot of Asian people in the Midwest? Or Yeah, it's all of that. And I think also in the Berkeley area, people just don't care what you are or what you look like. Everyone kind of looks like hell. And so <laughs> there's no... There's no weird pressure, and so, and there are lots of Asian people just everywhere. Yeah, and I, that is completely new to me, and so I feel invisible in a way that it's very enjoyable. That's great. That's got to be. I mean, because like I, I, I guess I guess I have that luxury. You know, I'm like a white. I'm just a boring white dude, you know, and I... You can go anywhere you want. Yeah, I've been invisible my whole life. I guess, I, I mean, maybe if I went to, like, Africa or something or, or went over to Asia, I'd stand out. But you know what I'm saying? Like, Western Europe, the United States, um, you know, that feeling of just kind of, like, not standing out, not having to feel like, uh, you know, ali- like an alien or... You know what I'm getting at. That That's, like... So, yeah, because... It's a luxury. Yeah, because, you know, I... I grew up feeling both invisible and overly visible in negative ways. Right. Like invisible in that I always felt overlooked and overly visible as in I drew attention for for being Asian American and I didn't want that. And so here it feels very comfortable to just be whatever I am and nobody's going to look at me strangely. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's many like, I mean, like San Francisco's got its problems, the Bay Area. Like anywhere, mm-hmm. you know, it's got its problems. But I, I always like I have a lot of affection for it. You know, it's it's on the bleeding edge of a lot of like progressive change. And I, I use the word progressive in a positive sense, you know, like socially. I don't know. I think it's a good place. Yes. I mean, I, I'm still new to it. So I'm still, you know, I still enjoy crossing the Bay Bridge. But um, I, I right now I'm I'm immersing myself in that feeling of starting a different life that i really like the winter the winters aren't as brutal i mean you know it's like it's a little bit overdone but it's hard not to rub oh there was (laughs) there was no winter and i tell you you know one does not miss flush no or scraping your windshield i'm over it so yeah so okay so uh you were born and raised in the midwest Uh, where is your family from like where did you guys uh immigrate from from Saigon. I was I was born in Saigon, actually, but I, we came over when I was a baby. I was about eight months old. So it doesn't really count in a way. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have any consciousness. So my family left Vietnam on April 29th, 1975, you know, right before the fall of Saigon. Uh-huh. And we landed in a refugee camp in Arkansas. And from there, we're resettled in Michigan. So that's where I grew up. And you know, always was American and always felt American and always spoke English. But, you know, my my dad and my grandmother and my uncles were definitely Vietnamese and had a really hard time adapting. What about your mother? Oh, my mother stayed in Vietnam. So when we left Vietnam 
1975, my parents were separated. And there, it was a, literally a last-minute decision. And so we left without her. Oh, my God. So what, whatever. There was, did, yeah, did, she stay back, did she stay back there? She stayed in Vietnam for years, and she came to the United States in 1984. Okay. But she's over here now. Yeah, she lives in Boston, and it turned out, I mean, there's, this is why I ended up writing a nonfiction book. It turned out there were, there, were, there were all these other stories, and no one had ever bothered to tell me or my sister, which is that, oh, my mother had other children before me, you know, and she had this whole other life. And I had these other siblings, and we never knew any of this. We never knew what she was doing in Vietnam all those years. And then one day, oh, she's in the United States. And so she didn't even tell you she was coming? She did not, but she didn't, she told, I think she told my dad, but my dad didn't tell us. Oh, thanks, dad. Because, <laughs> yeah, I know, thanks, thanks a lot. So he, he was, um, he was not the most communicative father. But I mean, what, a, what, I mean, I, I just have so much uh, empathy for people who make that kind of journey. Like, to, first of all, to be, like, being in Vietnam in the, you know, 70s and living through the Vietnam War and then... Um, leaving as a refugee and landing in the United States. I'm imagining, like, English was limited. I mean, did they come over knowing how to speak the language, or was that part of the hurdle, too? They did not speak very much. I mean, they spoke just a little bit because they were... My dad was in the Army, and so he, he dealt with Americans, and and so he did know a little bit, but not much. And so there was, there was a lot to learn. God. So what did he do? <laughs> they just learned. They watched... Honestly, we watched a lot of television. Yeah. And um, somehow just somehow got by. And, but but I mean, I like, what, I, did, what did he do for a living? Like you show up as a refugee. Is there any infrastructure to support? Oh, yeah. You have a sponsor. You do? Okay. Yeah, you get a sponsor. And the sponsor is, you know, a nice white person who shows you how to, <laughs> you know, how to I, rent an apartment. <laughs> yeah. I'm p- picturing someone in like pleated dockers and a pastel like polo shirt, but I could be. That's totally, exactly right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And he was really nice, and his family was nice, and they had a lot of money. And they, you know, sometimes we would go over to their big house and have a dinner that we didn't understand. And <laughs> like, um, what is this food? You know, <laughs> yeah. So, and my they, he helped um, he helped my dad get a job at one of his factories. It was a feather factory, and so that was my dad's job for a while, just working in a a feather factory. And he would come home with feathers and down all over his hair. Oh my God! So what? Are you, what was he like plucking ducks? Like what do you do at a feather? <laughs> you know what? He once did have to go to like a duck and chicken farm. Yeah. But he did. He didn't actually have to pluck them. He had to somehow, you know, funnel, help funnel the feathers through machinery to get processed so that they were fine or something like that. Wow. Well, that's. I mean, you know, that's. I mean, they could have been worse, I guess. There are people who show up and have no support. They just kind of wing it and. Um, yeah, you know, I think you know because of the U.S. involvement, and then the way that U.S. it left Vietnam, there was a sense of obligation toward helping the Vietnamese refugees. Right, right. Well, and then you know that's the other thing too. It's like it's one thing to show up; it's another thing to show up with like two young girls to take care of. It was two young girls, right? It was you and your sister. Yes. Oof. Yes. And but you know, and this is where I would say you know, as much as I uh, love not living in the Midwest anymore. Um, you know, this is where I would say the people of the Midwest are really nice, generally speaking. Like, there are worse parts of the country to have landed in, um, you know, in terms of just the general vibe and, like, people's willingness to reach out 
I mean, I, I don't know. That's the way I feel, at least in my memory. Like, do you do you agree? I agree partly because I think people are, are nicer in the West <laughs> since I've been here. Oh, really? I think there's a. I do. I think there's a a, a more genuine niceness, I guess, out here. Huh. And I think maybe this is. I think this partly because my experience growing up in the Midwest in the you know late seventies and throughout the eighties was, you know, not that positive in that people were nice sometimes, but very often the niceness is a form of condescension. Oh yeah. Well, let's see that. I mean, that's the thing. Like I'm remembering like people Christmas caroling and like, you know, somebody, somebody (laughs) somebody moved to the neighborhood and like they bake cookies. Like I live in LA now that would never happen. But um, at the same time, you know, multi from a multicultural perspective, Los Angeles is definitely um, a much nicer city than the place where I grew up, you know? And I, so I get that. Um, it's like, and the thing too is like, uh, like I, I think there are parts of the country where social graces uh, are more refined. Like I think of the South in particular, where I feel like people are better at like having people over down there and like having like a dinner party or cocktails or whatever. But there can be a kind of superficiality to that niceness, and there can be, you know, when when certain people leave the room or you know in private conversations, like the daggers come out. Uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like it's maybe not yeah. it's maybe not as nice as it looks. So maybe that's maybe that's somewhat similar to like the Midwestern niceness. Well, you know, I think to me there was this, there was a whole social code behind every interaction that we didn't understand, and I I spent a, a long time thinking about that in elementary school, middle school, high school. What every interaction was supposed to mean, and we didn't know the the etiquette. And I remember going to a friend's house and. Seeing, having dinner there and seeing everybody in the family put their napkins in their laps. <laughs> and this is just not something we did in our house. Yeah. We, we ate in a really haphazard way. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute, what are they doing? Is this, is this what people do? Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? And it was stuff like that that really made me think a lot about how to be a part of, you know, the greater quote-unquote American culture that I thought we didn't have access to in some way because we were such an immigrant family. Well, you know, that, that it's a good, that's an interesting point is that like those little kinds of behaviors and cultural traditions or whatever, uh, they matter in terms of integration and in terms of like bridging the gulf. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, because I feel like, yeah, I think I feel like it's harder for people to know how to accept or talk to somebody who doesn't, uh, like have, have that happening. I, I don't know. You know, it doesn't, it ultimately shouldn't matter that much, but I, I can kind of see how that could function as like a, a divide or like a, it could create like a, a sense of uncertainty about how to interact, you know? Oh, it, it does. And it probably more so on the part of the person who's new. I mean, it just made me self-conscious. Probably the family I was having dinner with didn't really think about it, but I was extremely worried about it. Well, And, like, and, and then and, I just thought, you know. Well, I mean, even in like yeah, in, like in, I wouldn't know how to re- interact with people otherwise. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and like in Vietnam, or at least like traditional Vietnamese culture, like, uh, and I don't know exactly, if, I don't know if this has changed, um, sadly, or, or like uh, how far back it goes. But I want to say in like Vietnamese culture, people bow in greeting one another as opposed to shaking hands. And I, the reason I, I bring it up is because I was, uh, I think I was reading a book by Thich Nhat Hanh, and he was like telling the story about like the first time someone tried to shake his hand. <laughs> it was like this really funny story. Um, because, you know, he's just used to bowing to people. So you sort of have to, um, you know, there's like all those little behaviors and stuff that you have to sort of get through. And, um, 
uh, I can. Yeah, I think the, the the Vietnamese people I knew who in America, the immigrants, they I never saw anybody bow because I think people adapted to certain things immediately as a as a way to survive. Well, sure. And well, and that's really that's what really what it's all about is like how do you how do you get by so that you're not a target, you know? Well, yeah. And and so that you're not. Yeah. So how did like I mean okay so how like culturally growing up you felt American I mean you you basically you essentially were born here you came here at birth so you have no memory of living in Vietnam um, but then at home you know it was more of a Vietnamese cultural experience I guess in, in some respects so like how did you identify internally? Well, I was I was totally confused. That's yeah. probably why I started that's why I started reading and why I eventually became a writer because I very much knew that I was two different people at the same time. Yeah. As soon as I went to school, you know, I was not Vietnamese at all. And then when I went home, you know, we would eat my grandmother's Vietnamese food, and that's and that's who I was. But I didn't... All the messages I saw were to be white, because I grew up in a predominantly white town, and you know, what town every you image in? you see... Was it Grand Rapids? In Grand Rapids, yeah. Michigan, yeah. And every image you see on television in the movies was was a beauty standard that, that, you know, that I, there was no way I could aspire to you know, as a Vietnamese person. So basically had to convince myself that I was completely American. There were, there was a point where I would see my reflection and be sort of surprised and be like, Oh, wait a minute. Jesus. Like, I don't look like my friends. Really? Yeah. Because I had sort of convinced myself that I was just like them. That's sort of heartbreaking. <laughs> it is. I mean, it's sort of sweet. You know what I'm saying? Like that you were internalizing, like trying to assimilate and trying hard to to fit in. I don't know. Do you know what oh, I'm saying? Oh, it was definitely. It was definitely a lot of internalized racism. Absolutely. And what did were people uh, kind to you? Like, did the did you get uh, like were kids ever ever cruel when you were growing up? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I have I had so many great friends, and and you know, I had. On the whole, a, a pretty fun childhood, but there were many, many, many moments of racism on the playground or, you know, people making fun of us or, you know, our eyes or, you know, saying ching chong to us and all kinds of things like that. How did Absolutely. You, how did you handle it? I just didn't. I mean, when you're outnumbered that way and you're not a, a large person and you're, <laughs> you know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not terribly um, prone to wanting to fight people. <laughs> the only thing you can do is just try to pretend like it didn't happen. Right. So that's what I would just do. Ugh. And then, of course, I think I would just internalize it, and then the the rage would emerge in some other way. Like what other way? You go home and beat like up your sister. Like <laughs> <laughs> No, she she was too fierce for that. She would have oh, okay. she would have beaten me up for sure. No, I think it was just. Um, Thinking, I, I would. It was stuff that played out later in high school and college. All you right. know, as I, you know, got into relationships, or as I, you know, sort of figured out writing. You know, thank God I learned how to read and write because it is a healthy. It I, is a healthy way to process like difficult emotions, yeah. or a healthier yeah. way. You know, it's better than uh, like punching a pillow or punching a human being. <laughs> Uh, you know. Yeah, definitely better than that one. Yes. So uh, let's get to like how you you know how you started to become a writer. I mean, it sounds like from a young age you were turning to books for solace, which is always 
a sign, you know, it's an early indicator. And then when did you start putting like pen to paper and really, um, you know, starting to express yourself in writing? Pretty early on, I would say, you know, by third or fourth grade, I was sort of copying the books that I was reading and writing parallel stories, you know, like almost like fan fiction, I guess. <laughs> and uh, just wanting to, to emulate. And like, these are all very secret. Who, 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 is, who are you reading and want, wanting to emulate? Well, the, uh, one of the books I read the most was Harriet the Spy uh-huh. by Louise Fitzhugh. Sure. And uh, I just wanted to be Harriet. Later, when I read the book when, as a, an adult, I realized that she was much more wealthy than I had imagined. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's why I wanted to be Harriet. Yeah. She lives in a mansion in New York. Yeah. yeah that's she's, why. she's on Easy Street. Yeah. And so, but, but, you know, I wanted to be her keeping all these secrets, and she was so independent. So that's what I did. But I had no independence because everybody, my, my mother, my stepmother and my sisters would always read whatever I wrote and would read my diaries. Oh, really? And so I would, yeah, so I had to come up with this really complicated system of writing <laughs> in a code that only I would understand. Really? Like you had your own little, like, code language? Yes, yeah, I did. And it was really hard to keep up. And so, you know, it didn't last very long. God, that's exhausting. <laughs> it's hard enough. To, <laughs> it's hard enough just to write all that stuff down, let alone do it in some sort of, like, code. But uh, So it sounds like you know, your sisters, like, they would find your diaries. You could not successfully hide them from... There, there was no privacy. None. And well, well, there's no privacy. I had, I had a sister. I had a stepsister. I had a stepmother. You know, a younger half brother, and you know, not a large house. So we were all in each other's business. Okay, is that good? That's bad. I mean, that drove you crazy. There's something to be said for that, though. I think like teaches you how to be with people. Um, yeah, we were close. I yeah. mean, we just you know we played games together all the time. We had a good time and everything. But there, whenever I wanted to be alone. I couldn't. Oh. And the only time I could be alone was when I was, strangely enough, when I was hanging out with my grandmother, she was the only person who never cared about what I was reading or writing. She let you get, let you be. So did she live nearby? She lived with us. Oh, she, she did? She lived with us. Okay, Grandma yeah, was there, she was too. The, she was the most stable. She was a stable force of our household. Okay. Like how so? Just emotionally or? Yeah, emotionally. And she did all the cooking and she looked after us and... Because my parents, like my dad had married my stepmother when I was four. And she, they, you know, they kind of had an up and down sort of marriage for a long time. And so... Are they still together? My grandmother was... They're still together. Oh, they are? Okay. Well, they, Amazingly. They made still it. together. They and, made it. <laughs> <laughs> so my grandmother was the, was the stable force. Okay. Good for grandma. I see, I, I, see there, there's a thing about that, too, like having uh, grandparents live... Uh, with you or nearby, um, as opposed to these scattered families like mine, like I wish. Yeah. There's something nice. And free childcare. Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. You can just be like, I'm leaving, going to a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so you get into high school, and uh, what kind of adolescent were you? And like, when, like, I want to hear more about how this anger might have manifested, because, you know, you bring up a good point. You go through the kinds of uh, things that you went through on the playground when you're young or as you were growing up and people are being cruel and you're outnumbered and you don't have a chance to really uh, fight back or defend yourself. You sort of have to internalize a lot of that. Um, and then at some point you've got you to gotta have a reckoning with it. So, like, how did, how did you start to deal with that as you became an adolescent? Well, I think I had, I mean, 
I did mostly internalize everything and then let it come out in the writing. I had a couple of bad relationships in which I didn't behave well, you know, where I was, you know, always fighting with the guy and picking fights and I didn't know why. And, I mean, they weren't horrible, bad, abusive relationships or anything like that, but they were just not good ones. Right. And I, and I would later in my life, I would look back and think about all the ways in which I was misbehaving in those relationships as a function of, you know, internalized stuff that I had worked out earlier, but that the, the guy, of course, had no idea about, and, right. you know, it's kind of too late to, to go back and be like, hey, sorry. <laughs> sorry. It's all, about this, it's all about this playground thing in fourth grade. I'm really sorry, but uh, someone had to take the brunt of it. it happened to be you. Yeah. Exactly. Well, but I mean, you know that that dude was working out something too. You yeah, know. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. We all are. We all are. And like, I, that's, I, I have this feeling a lot of times whenever I'm angry or whenever I see somebody get angry that, uh, or oftentimes it's uh, you, you get the sense that whatever the person is uh, nominally angry about, it's really only the surface. You know, there's something deeper. You know, you you see somebody get pissed off about like stubbing their toe in a really irrational way. And you know that like something much more bothersome happened earlier in their week or earlier in their day. Do you know what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah. So it's because we, we don't feel like we're allowed to say what we're upset about. Well, it's hard though, you know, because I think sometimes like performative anger or like this, this prescription for anger where it's like you have to express it or let it out or, you know, punch a pillow or whatever. I don't think that's necessarily healthy. Um, I, I think that, you know, I think that you have to, I mean, you tell me, I'm, I'm the one interviewing you. What do you think you should do? With you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take myself off the hook here, but I mean, no, I, I'll, I'll rejoin after you talk about it first, but like, how do you think, you know, if you have anger, um, what do you think is the best way to take care of it? Well, you know, lately I've been thinking about that a lot because I have, two small children mm -hmm. and sometimes I get really mad because I get really frustrated and be like, why the hell can't you just, you know, not have a tantrum Yeah, and just, you know, just be, go along with whatever I want you to do. Well, yeah. <laughs> and that's, that's usually the problem. And whenever I get mad, it, it makes me really stop and think because I so don't want to be an angry parent because, you know, I had angry parents. Right. And then I stop and think, okay, my anger is almost always about something I can't control. And so it, it's, and it's, it sounds easy to say, but it's really hard for me to step back and think about, okay, just admit to yourself that you want to control X, Y, or Z, and why do you want to control it? And then just admit that you can't and just give up or give in. And then whenever I kind of give in a little bit to that, to that which I can't control, I do feel a little bit better. Yeah. Well, like my daughter, you know, she's so, I have a four-year-old. She's so sensitive that if like the other night, like she was, I forget what she was doing. She was kind of essentially on her way to a tantrum. And I just kind of said like, Hey, <laughs> like not too much louder than that. I mean, a little bit louder, but I was just like, Hey, you know, like, Hey, and she just starts like her face crumples up and she goes, don't yell oh, no. at me. And she's like, don't <laughs> yell. I'm like, I didn't even yell, but it's like, you know, it's it's very dangerous as a parent because, like, what I you know, you don't want to be the angry parent, but you also realize that, like, if you demonstrate that this is how you resolve conflict or this is how you you know this is an acceptable way to emote, then you you have to feel like your kids are going to learn from that, or you know, to some degree. And I don't want my kid to be a yeller. You know what I'm saying? I feel like a deep sense of responsibility, and it's very delicate. It's very delicate, and kids are so sensitive, and people are sensitive. So, um, 
you know, it's, it's yeah. hard. It's hard work. Right. It's hard work. I've got to like, I'm, I'm on the meditation thing. Like meditations help me a lot with, uh, with anger. Oh, it helps. You know? Absolutely. Uh, it absolutely helps. I took up running, um, which I had never, ever done before in my entire life. I just started doing that a few months ago. Yeah. Helps. Well, it's like a boost. It's like a big shot of, uh, what is it? Serotonin. Like that stuff's real, man. <laughs> Uh, yeah, know. apparently it is. <laughs> well, you, I mean, I think there's a physical aspect. I mean, there's a physical aspect to anger or any difficult emotion. And I've been an exerciser since I was like 18 years old. And to me, it's just like an antidepressant. You know, it's a, it's a very, it has a very medicinal effect. And I don't feel normal unless I've like broken a sweat. I don't understand people who can like be like calm and normal without having some sort of like physical activity in their lives. Like I'm simply just not wired that way. Um, but my wife, well, that rage wife, is coming out somewhere. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> They're cutting themselves secretly. I know it. Um, so anyway, back to you, like yeah, high school experience, Grand Rapids, um, you know, did things improve? I was, did they get more, you know, I was more intense? A, I know I was a real, I was such an innocent in high school. I really was. I was on the debate team. I mean, I didn't really do anything bad. I was kind of a nerd. I had sort of nerdy friends. We played Trivial Pursuit, you know. Wow. And I'm, I know, I really enjoyed it. And I had a pretty good high school experience overall because you, of that. Did you have that? Like, <laughs> I've talked to a lot of uh, first-generation American authors on this show, and like in almost every case, I think, there was a lot of internal familial pressure to you know, achieve at a high level in school and get a good education and like you know, all parents want that for their kids, but I feel like the intensity of that um, focus is maybe uh, stronger, you know, when you're in that situation where you're the first generation and you're trying to assimilate and get ahead or whatever. Like, did you have that? Yeah, you know, oddly enough, I did not have that because my dad is not a typical Asian parent in that way. He never put that pressure on us. I mean, he really, or at least he didn't put that on me. And my stepmother was in education. She was a teacher. And I think she just sort of, she just sort of assumed that we were all going to be fine and, and go to college. But they didn't put a whole lot of pressure on it, but I put all the pressure on myself because I knew, <laughs> I, I mean, I would even sort of say it to myself. I was like, you're never going to get out of here unless you, you know, get good grades and go to college and do something because you were on your own. And I was thinking about this, you know, recently because my older started kindergarten this year and I was remembering how, how when I started kindergarten I remember looking into the mirror and saying to myself you are on your own now no one's going to take care of you, you wait you <laughs> said that to yourself when you were in kindergarten yes before we started kindergarten I remember exactly oh. what I was wearing and I said that to myself and I was like okay I'm going to go to kindergarten I'm on my own now like I was a grown up oh <laughs> you God. know and that's kind of like the feeling I always had I'm going to start throughout crying. school I'm sorry <laughs> throughout school and growing up that I was on my own but I think that was ultimately good for me because it, I felt independent and I felt that I had to, nobody was going to hold my hand through anything. And if I wanted to go to college or do anything, then I had damn well better do it myself. You thought you were thinking about college and kindergarten? <laughs> <laughs> I was actually, yeah, that, because I had an uncle who was going to college then, oh. and he was like, well, this is what you're going to do too. Damn. Well, that's a good, I mean, you know, that's a good example to have. That stuff matters, you know, having like an adult, just some adult that like did it, you know, in your, in your family. Well, I was, I think I was more motivated by fear. I was afraid that I was going to get stuck if I didn't take care of myself. Stuck in Grand and Rapids? Prob- 
Yeah, yeah, yes, actually. And also, that's, I think that is the sole reason why I didn't, you know, experiment with drugs and alcohol like the other kids in high school because well, I was and terrified now you're in of Berkeley. losing control. Now you're in Berkeley. You can catch up. Yeah, now I can do whatever I want, right? But, <laughs> you're like, I'm on, a- was- I'm on acid right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm, really, I'm, I'm very lucid. Right? <laughs> yeah, so I was afraid. I was afraid of losing control and that I would, you know, that someone else would dictate what was going to happen to me. Wow. Okay. So, and I think that was a product of being a child of immigrants. Yeah. And then your dad, uh, like your dad, uh, he he wasn't like the typical Asian parent who was really pushing it, like high academic achievement and you know discipline and all that kind of stuff. But like, what was he doing like post Feather Factory? Like once you were an adolescent. Yeah. So my dad became a contractor, a general contact contractor. But he, <laughs> you know, my dad is. Um, he is kind of a he's kind of a gambler, kind of a hustler, kind of a ladies man. He's a great dancer. I mean, he's an what? amazing dancer. Yeah, my dad's like incredible like dancing, ballroom dancer. Ballroom dancer. Okay, I was thinking it's like not yes. like, not like hip hop or. <laughs> well, not like yeah, not like Michael Jackson dancing, but his ballroom dancing is extraordinary. Wow. Okay. He, he looks like he's floating on air, and he's that was the life that he used to have when he lived in Saigon in his 20s, you know, sort of gambling and hanging out with fans and, you know. Like gambling, like playing cards, like he's a book. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so he, I mean, that didn't stop. (laughs) He brought brought that act to Grand Rapids. He's like, I'm taking this on the road. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, you know, he had a lot of friends, still has tons of friends, and they would get together all the time and drink and gamble and, and party. And that was, you know, that was really important to him. And so that was occupying most of his time. I don't think he was, that was, that was more important to him, I think. And I don't mean this in a, in a negative way. I think that was really the focus of his, of his attention. He wasn't so concerned about whether his kids were going to go to college. Were you close with him? I mean, did you have like a, a positive relationship? I wasn't close to him. I was afraid of him. Okay. Everybody was kind of afraid of him because he, he did not really talk to us about a lot of things and he definitely had a lot of rage that sometimes he would just get mad at things mad at people and just get mad you know at things at objects and throw them and we didn't know why but i see now that of course he experienced so much racism oh my god that you can never ever talk about right see that's the thing you know you see somebody throw like a you know a lamp across the room and you're like what a nut and then yeah, a little perspective, and you just start to feel sad for them, <laughs> you know, or under- yeah. understand better. But, uh, like, when you say he had lots of friends, like, was there uh, – it wasn't like a, a Vietnamese immigrant community in Grand Rapids. Like, was he assimilating and making friends with uh, – Oh, no, there's a, there's a big Vietnamese Oh, there is? There okay. Yeah. I didn't realize that. So, I mean, was he yeah. – when you say he has lots of friends, is he, was he making friends mostly within that context, or was he making friends, like, more broadly uh, around oh, the they were mostly – he has a his, he has a ton of friends, different friends now, but they were, back in the day, they were mostly in the Vietnamese community. Okay. And the, it was a it was a support system where they could they could talk in Vietnamese and right. drink and eat whatever they wanted and not feel not the have to put pressure, not have to put their napkins in their lap and <laughs> yeah exactly. they could do whatever they wanted. <laughs> so okay, so where'd you go to college? I went to the University of Michigan because I, I mean, probably because, mostly because it was what I could afford. I had to pay for it myself. Okay. But I mean, and so how, and did, you, was, how did you figure that out? You just, uh, 
you get in and then you apply for financial aid? I had I had mostly scholarships, so I didn't actually owe very much. Oh, good. I had I only had to take out a very small amount in, in loans. But so I mean, that's really why I went there. But just to have the wherewithal, like who was helping guide you to apply for for scholarships? Did you have like a, I mean, was it completely self directed, or did you have any adult in your life helping? You know, honestly, if my stepmother ever heard this, she'd be kind of pissed. But the truth is, no, she. I, it was totally self directed. Wow. It was, you know, and I applied to other schools, but this is the one that I knew that I could afford. And if I, maybe if I had someone someone else guiding me, that wouldn't have been the case. And I would have gone to a different school because I would have figured out that I maybe could have afforded a different school. But, you know, in any case, I was so happy, so happy to be living in a dorm on my own. Even if it was just two and a half hours from where I grew up, it felt like a completely different world. Yeah. Freshman year of college was one of the happiest years of my life. What did you do? Did you go? You didn't go nuts or anything. You just had fun. I didn't go nuts in in, in you know a drinking partying way. I went nuts in <laughs> in, the, in the nerdiest way possible. I went to the library and I took any class that I wanted, you know, biology, anthropology, astronomy, and I literally just went to class and and read stuff, and it just felt like freedom. Huh. That's fun. That's know, wonderful. That's, that's hopelessly that, nerdy. Oh, no, that's like, that's like actually how college is supposed to be. <laughs> that's what it felt like. It, yeah. it was like, this is just a pure liberal arts experience. Yeah. Good for you. So you, and you had good grades coming out of high school. Like you were a good student all the way through. Yes, I was. Yeah. Like super good. Like straight A's valedictorian. <laughs> no, no. I, cause I, I, I got a couple of B's in gym class. Oh, that's, that's bullshit. Yeah. It shouldn't even count. My gym teacher was really tough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I couldn't do the high jump. Wow. I mean, I'm like five feet tall, okay? Yeah, well, you and me both. I mean, I'm not five feet tall, but I'm a white guy. I can't jump. <laughs> so, okay. But that's, you know, that really shouldn't screw up a person's grade point average, their gym grade. That's ri- that's ridiculous. Uh, well, it, it did. Yeah. Well, I feel bad for you. I, I want to... Uh, I want to have a word with your high school, but <laughs> so you get to Michigan, you're, um, you're immersed academically, uh, socially, was it better for you? Oh, socially it was great. I had lots of friends. The, yeah. the only thing I couldn't figure out socially was college was the first time where there were all these, you know, there are all these student groups on campus, you know, like, and they're all divided by like ethnicity. So I'm like, oh, my God, am I supposed to join, like, the Asian-American students group? Am I – do I qualify? <laughs> right. And so it was that, – that part was kind of confusing. But eventually, you know, I just met people in my classes. And I got involved in all things related to creative writing, which was a really small community at the time. And you were and you were a writer in college. Like, that was, that was your um, course of study? Like, that was what you were thinking from the beginning? I was an English major, and then I took creative writing on the side, yeah. Okay, so earliest attempts at writing fiction in a, in a serious <laughs> Freshman way. year. Freshman year. <laughs> yeah. You, you, I still remember exactly everything that I wrote. Well, and the, and the, what did you the write? Instructor. <laughs> I wrote, it, this, and this is interesting because, like, I didn't know up until my second career writing class, I didn't know that I could write about people who weren't white, if that makes any sense. In that I never read, I was never really exposed to literature that really wasn't about white people. Oh, my God. So everything I wrote was just, the default was like, everybody was white, you know? It's just, 
a white girl coming to live with like a white aunt. And it was all, it was, to me, it was all about the language, you know, I was really focused on the sentence structure and all of that. But it took into my second career writing class when a professor pointed out to me, she said something like, do you ever write about yourself? So you were writing, writing you were writing about, you were writing about white girls? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Wow. You know, from first person point of view. Yeah. And she's like, well, she's like, I mean, do you ever write about you yourself? And I was like, uh, what do you mean? And she like actually had to point it out to me. Oh. She's like, well, you mean the fact that you are, you know, Asian? I was like, whoa. <laughs> and so I tried it. <laughs> College is mind-blowing. It, I know, yeah. Anyway, I tried it, and, and it, it, did, it changed something for me. To sort of, it was really, really frightening. I, I could not workshop it because I was really scared. Oh. I just gave it to the professor at the end of the year. Because I was like, that was, I was really frightened so because it had changed something in me to realize yeah. that there was something valid about my personal experiences. Well, and I mean, it just, it makes me, you know, identity is clearly like a major theme of your life and work. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it's like, again, it's like sort of heartbreaking to think that you're in college and this is the first time you felt the... Um, or you, you were made aware that it was okay to tell your own story and to like identify that way. Um, I know. Well, it was 1992. Yeah. Yeah. I (laughs) I mean, just like, so, okay. So, but did, were you demonstrating, um, like did teachers point, uh, point to you and tell you that you were doing well at this and that this is something you should pursue? Did you get that kind of encouragement? I did. Yeah. They were the, my professors, they were, were wonderful and very encouraging. And so that's, what I started doing more, and I took a lot of literature classes, and um, that's just what I fell in love with. And back then, nobody worried about, oh, you know, how practical is this degree? You just did it because it was the thing that you wanted to do. And, and so that's why I went on to get my MFA. Okay, so you, I mean, did you get the did you go on to get your MFA immediately after? I did. All right. Because I just, I thought, I thought for some reason I just thought you, I should. Um, I think, you know, in hindsight, I usually tell my students to, to wait a little, you know, take some time to think about right. their life, you know. Go work a shitty job for a while. <laughs> so you really appreciate, yeah. so you really appreciate the time. <laughs> uh, so, okay. So, you, but who was encouraged, like who, who told you about the MFA option? Like, how did you find out about that? Did somebody direct you or did you figure that one out on your own as well? The professors told us about it because that was also before all the blogs. Okay. You know, all all the information that you could find online. That was before there was very much information about anything online. <laughs> There's no information back. That's why, that's that's my era too. Like I mean, we used to, used to have to submit yeah. to like journals and like you'd, you'd hand mail like hard copies and like you know send query letters and all that kind of stuff. Like right, exactly. I mean, I never would have even have thought to search MFA programs on Alta Vista. Yeah, right. Or what was it? Prodigy, you know, or whatever the first. Oh, uh, yeah. So, so where did you get your MFA? So I stayed at Michigan. Oh, you did. You and stayed. again, because of, because of funding. So I, okay, again, this is, this shows how incredibly naive I was. I only applied to two MFA programs because I thought, oh, well, I'll just go to one or the other. Which ones did you apply to? Michigan and what else? <laughs> Michigan and Columbia. All right. And did you get into Columbia? Okay. I did, but do you know how expensive Columbia is? Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I, yeah. don't, I don't know the exact dollar amount, but I can imagine it's a pretty penny. 
it's really expensive. Even if you're offered a partial fellowship, it's really expensive, yeah. which I didn't even think about when I was applying. And I'm not even sure why I applied that. I just thought, oh, well, it's New York. It'd be fun. Okay. Anyway, so when the reality of the, of the financial aspect set in, I was like, oh, shit, I have to go to Michigan because they, they, their, their financial package is you know, obscenely good. Which I mean, is, they practically pay you they to did. go get your MFA. Yeah, so you, you was more, it, yeah. it essentially is. You know, they, you get a stipend and a fellowship and, you know, you can practically make a profit if you, if you live carefully. So That's awesome. That's the way it should be. Yeah, it's, it's a good system. But I got my MFA in poetry, which is, you know, my dark secret. Really? What, what kind of poems were there? <laughs> what kind of poems were these? <laughs> I was influenced by writers like Joey Graham. And were you, and like, were you, this is, okay, so why, but I mean, this is, this is interesting to me because you were writing fiction, um, you were beginning to find your own voice and identity, you know, and find your own identity or work, you know, work on identity in your work. And then like when the shift to poetry, that must've been happening as an undergrad, like you were starting to. It was happening. Yeah. And I think when I look back at it, I think the truth is that I could hide more in poetry than in fiction. Nonfiction was not a track back then. And, you know, I, I feel like you can hide more in poetry. You can obscure more and you're like, this be is more the, vague. You're like, this is, this, is, this is me pouring my heart out, but it's so fucking confusing, you'll never understand what I'm actually trying exactly. to say. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's exactly right. So, you know, there's, a, there's something, there's an element of code in there. Yeah. That, you know, I know a poet would be totally objective by saying that, but... I think that's what drew me to it. And, you know, just studying on the, on the level of the line and the image was very appealing and just sort of staying in that small sort of safe space. So, but you weren't thinking like from a practical, like financial perspective, post-college, like what were you thinking for a career? Were you thinking I'm going to be an actor? I was not thinking. No, I wasn't thinking at all. At all. No one ever thought about that. No one thought about that. And I remember in my MFA program at the time, which has now changed a lot, but at the time, anytime someone brought that up, what should we do afterwards? The answer was always, don't think about that. <laughs> You're supposed to be perfecting your craft. You're supposed to be just honing your writing. That's all you need to worry about right now is your art. And we'd be like, oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, I feel like there needs to be a lot more practical advice given to uh, students in those programs. It's kind of a cruelty. I mean, yeah. I, I get that like people need space to be creative and to let, you know, to pursue their art and they need the support in that way. But for God's sakes, like people got to, people have to make a living when they get out. Uh, yeah, I know. And now that I teach an MFA program, that is a big component for me. Big. Cause I don't want the, I mean, the perfecting your art, of course, is important and lifelong, but the practical matters, you just, you can't afford to ignore them. So what do you tell your students? We do a lot of professional development as an extracurricular thing and then also folding into um, workshop and mentorship, which is to say, like, think about, like, if someone's writing a novel, I'm like, you know, let's think about the marketplace for your novel and also think about, you know, why you're writing this and what your end goal is, just stuff like that. And you're like, and if, you're you, know, like you, what, you teach them how to wait tables, <laughs> like, this is how you take <laughs> I, you know, I try to give them some reality about the academic job market as well, because I think there's a lot of 
there's a lot of misinformation about that, and a lot of students go into MFA programs thinking that they're going to hop onto the academic market right when they're done, and that's just not the case. Well, no, it's competitive. Yeah, and you know they can end up just adjuncting forever, which is not a good idea. Okay, so how do you like? You're not adjuncting forever, are you? You're you're an academic. Yeah, I am. I mean, I'm I'm a professor. Okay, so how did you? I'm one of the I'm one of the lucky ones who got onto the track. How did you get onto the track? Onto the tenure track. I published a book. Okay. But even then, that's not any guarantee. I know lots of people who have books who are have not been able to get tenure track jobs. So it's there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of training and studying and, and professional development that goes into trying to figure out how to get a tenure track job. It's sort of a combination of like your teaching philosophy and your teaching experience and and your publishing and how you interview. I mean, I'm convinced that some people just are great people and would be great colleagues, but nobody has given them sufficient training and in doing an interview in person with potential colleagues in, in a way that doesn't freak them out. <laughs> in a way that makes them fear for their lives quietly. Yeah. So what, let's talk about your publication because that is, I mean, that goes hand in hand with getting a tenure track job and, and having a career that can support a writing life, you know, because most writing lives, let's be honest, don't support themselves. Mm-hmm. So how right. did you, how did you get, how did you go from the MFA at Michigan to getting published? Well, I, you know, I, I definitely spent some years doing odd, random jobs. Like I worked at a law firm and, you know, I did some, I worked as an editorial assistant and just some, and I did adjunct teaching too. So I, I had been working, you know, I got my MFA in poetry, but as soon as I got my MFA in poetry, I stopped writing poetry. I mean, getting an MFA in poetry kind of was the end of poetry for me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went back to prose. And I think that was, it was what I needed to do was to get something out of the way or figure something out through poetry. Now, I, my first book was nonfiction, uh, Stealing Buddha's Dinner, and that happened accidentally. I never meant to write a memoir, but it just was so, such a true story. It didn't work any other way. It didn't work as fiction. It just felt like a fictional story that was so obviously true. So, so, so the, you were, you started you, you started to work with that particular material, and then under the under the uh, idea that you were going to write a novel, and then eventually you're like, this is this is actually true, and why hide it? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because I would find myself like trying to obscure or change things just to make it fictional, and it was so much work, and it was not it was not work that I enjoyed, and I was I took you know this took years for me to figure out well, you know maybe I should just tell it the way it is. See, the, the, and then when I <laughs> no, this is so. This is such a good point because I remember teaching creative writing in my adjuncting years and uh, reading uh, people's stories, and it could be or it could be anything almost. It could be a book that's published, but so many times I find myself either thinking or in a critique saying, "Just say it." And it sounds like with your particular uh, path, you know, this whole poetry MFA was kind of an exercise in in trying not to just say it. <laughs> And then you yeah. spend you spend years on uh, Sealing Buddha's Dinner, the memoir, and you're thinking I'm going to find a way to like not say it, and it'll make it fiction, so no one'll you know. And then finally you're just like, oh fuck it, I'm just going to say it. And that tends <laughs> that tends that tends to be a good that tends to be what readers want, you know, like that tends to work more often than not in terms of delivering 
a satisfying reading experience. Right? I, no? think, I think that's absolutely true. And I think it did. It, it, it took me all those years of, you know, trying to hide something to finally just get tired of trying to hide. And really, I had spent my entire life doing that, trying to hide. And yeah, so it's finally like, you know, what the hell? I'm just going to just say it and see what happens. And, What's the worst that could happen? Right. And then, so what happened? You got an agent, you got an agent, and then sold the book? What happened? Well, what happened was that I submitted it to a, to a contest at, at, at the Pan American Center. And so and it won the contest. And um, so based on that, an editor called me to see if she could, at, at Viking, to see if, you know, if I had the contract for it yet. And that's how the book came to be. You, you're like, I didn't even need an agent. I leapfrogged that whole process. <laughs> but I did get an agent you after did. that. Okay, yeah. You know, for like, for, for my second and third books. And, and that, like, that process that was, I, I, I assume, like, not as painful and, and, like, difficult as it normally is because of the publication that you've already, you're, you know, the success that you'd already had? Oh, getting an agent? It still took, you know, six months. Okay. And where did you land? Yeah. Uh, my agent is Nicole Raji. Oh, okay, yeah. She's she's a good one to have. She's great. I I love her, but I remember when I was sending out, you know, queries. I mean, there there were several agents who I literally never heard from them. So, it's hard. It's I think it's hard for for everyone. It's it's sort of a it can be a really just depressing process. Well, and but the, I mean, timing. I guess most of writing is. Yeah, I mean, timing matters. Uh, you know, getting to getting your manuscript in the right place at the right time agents are so busy they've got a zillion manuscripts coming at them from every direction uh, or at least you know the good ones do and so getting their attention uh, making sure you yeah. meet, you know you get their attention on a day when they're not in a shitty mood <laughs> um, this is exactly right and yeah. i think this is true of of jobs and the academic track and all of that it's so much of it is not personal it's you know whoever is doing the hiring what mood they're in and if you just happen to be in the right moment I feel like luck really does play a role. No, oh, I think it plays a yeah. huge role, and I think it's you know I've I've talked about this a lot on the show and in my life, but um, I think it plays maybe it could even play like a majority role. Um, like I think about how I got my adjuncting job. I called, I literally called the English department at the school like two days before the fall semester started, just to like see if they had any openings, and they had had just had somebody cancel, or in, and we're in a panic. Like a teacher had just. <laughs> And they were like, can you come in for an interview tomorrow? And I did, and I got the job just because they they were in a complete panic. Uh, you called at the right time. Yeah, I mean, it was like that random. It was just complete random luck, and I guarantee you I would not have gotten in there otherwise. So timing, luck, who knows? And, you know, you got to show up. Um, but I don't know. It's, it's sort of uh, – it, it can be unpleasant, I think to consider the the role that luck plays when it, it is you know when you, when you want to believe that you can control it by like hard work and you know like yeah but you just kind of, it takes a little bit of both i guess i mean you got to work hard but you also got to get lucky so you've had yeah, some, you've had some, go ahead i was going to say you've had some good luck well sort of i guess um i mean i feel i'm happy to be where i am and i feel like i have had some good luck and Maybe not as good as other people, but definitely some some good luck. And it's you know just there's no formula, basically. And I think it can be frustrating because in so many other fields, it feels like there's a formula. Mm. You know, if you want to go to med school or you want to be a lawyer, 
seems like there's a formula. But in our field, there's so many different ways you can go. Yeah, a million paths up the mountain, essentially. Yeah. So okay, so how do you get the uh, how do you get the tenure track job? Um, you know, you, you start to publish books, and then when does when does your academic career take hold? Well, I mean, the thing about the if you really if people if you really really want a tenure track job, you kind of have to be willing to go to anywhere in the country. Right. You know, you can't be like, oh, I'm only going to look in the New York area. <laughs> right. Because then you have to really be super lucky. You kind of have to be like, I'll go anywhere. And that's what I did. That's how I ended up living in Indiana for years and teaching at Purdue because, you know, my husband and I were like, we'll go anywhere. And we really meant it. <laughs> You're like, well, I will go to West Lafayette, Indiana and live in the corn. And, yeah. Uh, and we did, yeah. you know, for years. And, you know, we, we loved living there in, in that we loved the MFA program. We loved our students and um, just loved being a part of that community. Loved being but a, after a while, a boilermaker, you know, I never admitted to that one in particular, but, <laughs> <laughs> but after a while it was after we had children, because I, I think I could have just gone on doing that for years without children because we would go to Chicago all the time. But after we had children, I just sort of realized, oh, my God, my children are going to grow up the way I grew up. You know, it won't be as bad, not by any means, but it will be fairly similar to how I grew up. And I just didn't want that. It really freaked me out. And it motivated us to to try to leave. And so, okay. So, and your husband, is a, is he in writing as well? Yes, he's a writer too. Oh, he is. Okay. He's a novelist. All right. Uh, does he have books out? Let's plug him if he does. Yes. <laughs> his name is Porter Shreve, and his um, his novels are the obituary writer. And, so it sounds like a uh, sounds like a cheery one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was his first novel, the yeah. obituary writer, and drives like a dream when the White House was ours. And his most recent is called The End of the Book. All right. Also cheerful. All right. Yeah, right. <laughs> the end of the book. Okay. So you guys decide you want to move to a bigger city. Did you, did you say the Bay area explicitly or did you just say a bigger city and we'll, we'll pick a few and see if we can get jobs? Yeah, that's what we did. We just looked at the job market, you know, cause you're, you're at the mercy of whatever universities happen to be having a job opening, you know? So every September, everybody who wants a job, a tenure track job, you look at the job list and you're like, okay, let's see who's got what this year. And so it just happened that there was a job in the Bay Area, but that that was not the one that I thought we were, that I wanted or that I was going to ever get. What, 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 so was your, were, what were you thinking you were going to, or what were you hoping to get? New York? I was hoping to get kind of anything in any other, you know, bigger city, but I, I don't know why. I just thought, oh, I remember when I went, came out here to do the campus interview, and I just thought, oh, I don't think I'll ever get this job. And I think part of it was just like, oh, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine myself here because this place is too good. Right. <laughs> There's bridges you know? and mountains. It's beautiful. I mean, it really is. A, yeah. it's the most be- I think it's the most beautiful American city, like stunningly beautiful place. It is beautiful. And I've never, and I was like, you know what? I've never lived in a place like this. And I was like, you know what? I don't think that I'm going to get this because of that. You know, this is just too pretty for me. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I like, I did my interview. I had no confidence, but then, you know, got the job offer. I was like, holy shit, are we actually going to move? And it was a tenure. It was a tenure track position. Where? At the University of San Francisco, where I teach. Yes, that's fantastic. And you know, I had been tenured. 
I was tenured at Purdue, and, you know, it's a huge move to make. And, you know, my husband was tenured at Purdue, and he gave up his tenure job. And, you know, we made this huge decision in a few months, and it was really stressful and hard. But mainly did it because we wanted to change our lives and wanted to change our children's lives. And you did it. Good for you. That's I all. hope so. <laughs> yeah, you're like fingers crossed. But no, but that's like you know. I like I like when people have courage like that. You know. You I mean and what's the? Well, you could always go back to the Midwest somewhere in some way. You know what I'm saying? Like you give it a shot, and it turns out that you like it. And um, what you say you live in Berkeley? Is that what you do? And you you commute over the bridge to the? Yeah, to the I'm city? I'm in the East Bay, and I commute. I really like the East Bay. The weather's great. Yeah, you're not in all the fog and. You got yeah. a lot of crazy hippies and whatever. Anything goes, like you said. <laughs> Nobody cares. How I like the live. hippies. What did you say? Nobody cares. I, how I love that. Nobody don't care. They don't care. Everyone looks like hell, and I really appreciate that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I like that too. Um, okay, so in the, what, like career-wise, like uh, publication-wise, book sales-wise, uh, what is your ambition? Like, you know, do you have like some grand ambition on the publication side of the equation, where you say? You know, eventually I would love to be just writing books and I wouldn't have to teach or is teaching really integral to who you are and you would never want to give it up? It's, you know, it's a little hard for me to say right now because I, I do like teaching and I direct the MFA program at the University of San Francisco and I enjoy that. I like being part of that community and having this other self. Um, at the same time, yes, that's, that's a huge part of my life and so it's hard to get the writing done. But... I don't think that I, I don't think that I am good enough at self-promotion and publicity and marketing and all that goes into being a full-time writer. I'm not that kind of person. And, and sometimes I wish I were, especially when I'm on Facebook and Twitter, but I'm just not that kind of person. And so I'm, I think I'm more the kind of person who needs the, the stability of the university life. Yeah. That's not a bad thing. And like, how do you, how, like, and, you, and you have two kids, so how do you get the writing work done at all? When do you do it? I don't know. When do you do it? Do you, <laughs> do you have a schedule? I stay up late. I don't have a schedule. I don't have a good sense of discipline. I'm not one of these people who gets up at 5 a.m. to write. I don't write every day. I'd love to be able to say I do that. I admire people who do that, but I've never been that kind of person. I... I'm, I'm one of those binge kind of writers, you know. I will write for hours at a stretch if I get them, you know, if my kids are in school or something. But very often there will be days that go without any writing, and then I'll feel guilty or I'll have a deadline. My motivations are probably not the best ones, <laughs> you know, deadlines and guilt. But, um, <laughs> Whatever works. <laughs> those are the things that, that work for me eventually because I, I have a very poor sense of discipline and time management overall. But look that's at you. what I feel. Yeah, whatever. That's, that's how I feel. Says the, dire- says the director of the MFA program at the University of San Francisco who's published three books. Come on. I feel st- but I feel stressed out all the time because I feel like I need to accomplish more. But I think that maybe because of Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, so yeah. That, that's the thing. You're constantly getting all these messages from people who are like achieving and doing things and taking pictures of their feet when they're on vacation and you're just like, my life sucks. Like I'm not doing it. You know, like, um, That's right. It's very stress inducing. Um, so, okay. Do we cover everything? I mean, is there anything else that uh, we need to talk about? I mean, pioneer girl, 
Um, there's like a Laura Ingalls Wilder, um, like Little House. I think that's sort of an interesting angle is the fact that those books really moved you. Yeah, because a lot of people ask me, well, why would someone like you write about Laura Ingalls Wilder? Right. And what they really mean is, you're not a white person, so why are you <laughs> writing about a white person? Right. <laughs> and that's that's always really startling to me, but, you know, I, what's always startling to me is how much race appears in so many interactions, yeah. especially anything literary. It's always, it's always the assumption, you know. Especially, you know, if you're if you're an Asian American, you have to write about Asian Americans, and if you stray from that, there's something wrong. Right. Well, but it's just. I mean, so, I, mean like, you know, I think I like what I was getting at is just like those books meant something to you as a child, right? Yeah, and it meant something to me because I think the immigrant experience was like the pioneer experience. Right. You know, you're alone. You're starting over. You're building your own house. You know, and that's why I think I identify with those books. Yeah, and the only thing you have to get you through the day is the, the promise of eating something good at night. God, that's bleak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I remember watching that show growing up, though, like Half Pint. And my mom, you know, my mom would like cry during episodes, like like not not in any kind of excessive way. But I just remember being like, Mom, it's Little House. Chill out. <laughs> you know, like, well, that's because Michael Landon was always crying. Yeah, Michael in Landon. practically every episode. He and, cried all the time. And then what were it was Half Pint was uh, Laura, right? That was then, Laura. And then the older mm-hmm. sister who got, she was blinded by scarlet fever. Is that right? Yeah. What was Carrie. her? Carrie, yeah. Uh, Carrie, Mary. Mary yeah. Carrie was the younger yeah. one. Mary was the one who went blind, yeah. Yeah, and then her, Mary, uh, was, would she marry Alfonso? <laughs> what was his name? What was his name? The blonde guy. Alonzo. Alonzo. No, no, no. Laura married Almanzo. Almanzo. Okay, see, I'm, you know, I sort of, I have some, some content. Alfonso. Alfonso. I'm now was I'm... from Silver Spoons. Okay, yeah. I'm, I feel like I'm sort of making him, uh, like Alfonso sounds like a black guy, but... Oh, oh, oh. He, he he was Ricky Shorter's best friend in Silver Spoons, yeah. Afonso Rivera. Afonso, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, there we go. But yeah, no, Little House was a uh, that was a that was a big hit. Michael Landon, you know, he was he, he was yeah. Like, well, he did he did you know he cried all the time. But in the books, Pa never cried. No. So I mean, the books are very you know they're 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 actually very bleak in that way and and pretty strict. And so I mean, I liked that as a kid and so that always that always stayed with me so when you read them as adult and as an adult you look back and you see how they endured it just it seems insane yeah no i mean it was not easy i mean because it can be really easy um you know looking back or to sometimes like romanticize like pioneer days when the land was wide open and uh you know nothing was polluted or ruined and like corporations hadn't had a chance like dump chemicals into the rivers or whatever but Man, when you're when you're like homesteading back in the day out in the Great Plains, like that was not an easy life. Yeah, you literally would pull up to a field and be like, "Hey, I think we'll live here." <laughs> oh yeah, we just have to build our house, find a wood, dig a well. Yeah. You, you mean what? <laughs> yeah, no, not easy, not easy. But I guess there's, you know, it must have been in some ways like a really good life. You know, there, I don't know, maybe. It, I think it sounds like an incredibly difficult life. Yeah. And and much more filled with sadness than satisfaction. Yeah, is what it seems like, and that's that's one thing I kind of enjoy about those <laughs> little house books. <laughs> just the uh, like, just the relentless bleakness of the pioneer yeah, life. Yeah, that. 
But yeah. what, what about like the pioneers or like the people who first settled like the coast of California? Like that's got to be like the land of milk and honey. Like you show up out here and it's like, talk about a place that's been overpopulated and sort of, I mean, I'm thinking of Los Angeles maybe more than San Francisco, but if you were one of yeah, the... Yeah, but only for, those, only for those who struck gold, literally, right? But think about the people who, who lost out or who were exploited as a result. Well, at least you can like just hang, like now, just be homeless on the beach. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> it seems like a little bit, a little bit kinder. You know, to be, to, just, if you strike out and you're in like the Bay Area or you're on the beach in Santa Barbara, that still sucks. But if you strike out in like the middle of South Dakota, <laughs> like that's well, uh, you know, you won't, you won't freeze to death in a blizzard. Yes, that's true. I think that's what I'm getting at, um, <laughs> and I don't mean to be insensitive to like the pioneer experience. It's just you know. There's a part of me that will always romanticize like the pre like overpopulated life. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the the pre oh, yeah. pre industrial pre industrial like craziness. Or, I think that is a big that's a big motivator for you know people who want to move or who want to immigrate. That there's this idea of I can reinvent my life. I can things will be better over there wherever that is. Yeah. Even if the, the reality turns out to be different, there there are enough people. Who make that true to make the dream seem like it's still possible? So, are you done? Are you I mean? Are you done moving? You think? Are you think? Is there another move in your future? Or you think you're going to plant yourself in uh, the Bay Area, raise your kids? I hope to stay here. I love it. Okay. I love everything about it. Well, I've really enjoyed talking with you. I congratulate you on uh, all Thank your you. success and on Pioneer Girl and. Thank you. Uh, and you know, on, on the big move to the Bay Area, and uh, I wish you well going forward. Thank you so much. Okay, guys, there you go. That is Bigman Nguyen. Her novel is called Pioneer Girl. It is out there now from Viking Press. You can find her online at BigmanNguyen.com. Her Twitter handle is at BigmanNguyen. So go follow her over at the Twitter. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. Don't forget to get the Other People app. This podcast has its own free app, an official free app. It's the best way to listen. You can... Uh, Get the app wherever apps are available in the App Store or in the Amazon Marketplace if you have an Android device. You get the app on your device, and then the most recent 50 episodes of this podcast will be there waiting for you, free. And uh, you can stream them right there. You can uh, download them to listen to offline. You can also sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app if you want to stream the deep archives and get access to everything. Uh, That's a good thing to do, and it's a great way to support the show, and uh, it's very cheap. So please do that. Go get the app. The app itself is free. So, uh, Las Vegas. I know it can be fun. I just don't like the losing. I don't like that down and out feeling that you see all around you. People in a capitalist fever dream getting worked over by a system that is uh, decidedly not in their favor. But, you know, the best feeling in the world is winning free money. That is fun. That is a good feeling. I won't deny it. Getting away with something. The gods are smiling on you. You have the right energy. Whatever it is, when that happens, it's good. Not that it's ever happened to me in a mass quantity. But I have won before, a little bit, here and there, playing cards in Las Vegas. And, of course, uh, the other side of that coin is that the worst feeling in the world is to lose money in such a you know, colossally stupid manner just feel gutted. I remember when I was young, I saw Dennis Rodman in uh, Las Vegas once. 
That about sums it up. He sort of embodies. <laughs> or at least he did, he did at the time. I remember feeling very cool about that. I saw Dennis Rodman in Vegas. It somehow punctuated what I was hoping was a crazy experience. It served as evidence that I had had an authentic crazy night in Las Vegas because I saw Dennis Rodman. The other thing I think, the other part of the appeal when you're like 19 or 20 years old or whatever is that it's really hard to get arrested in Las Vegas. You know, I think that might be why I liked it so much in my youth. As a teenager, I was sort of afraid of getting arrested for drinking underage or for whatever, you know, not that I was some delinquent, but you, I grew up in the, in the Middle West, as many of you know, the cops had nothing better to do. They wanted to get you. They were always lurking. You go to Las Vegas and it's like anything goes. Like in Las Vegas, they will not arrest you unless, uh, A, you're trying to cheat the house and they catch you, in which case you're completely fucked. Or, uh, B, you're just an absolute spectacular moron. Like you have to really try to misbehave and get arrested in Las Vegas if you're out there just having a good time. Like you can go pretty far. And they're not going to mess, you know, they're not going to mess with you. Here's why. They want you to be fucked up. They love that. That's the idea. That's why they give you free drinks when you're gambling. They want you inebriated. They want you in a state of feverish indulgence. They want you hypnotized by the, you know, almighty dollar. And they want your judgment impaired. That's the goal. That's the aim. That's the uh, part of the con. But of course, you know, when you're 19... <laughs> You're happy to go along with it. Some people uh, for much longer than that. But you're not going to get arrested. Drugs? Great. They love it when you're drunk and coked up. That means you'll lose even more money. They want your confidence elevated artificially. It's just a, it's a crazy place. It is a place that could only exist, it seems, in America. It's very quintessentially American. I don't know uh, if that's good or bad. Something tells me it might be our dark side in all of its neon uh, splendor, but there it is, Las Vegas, Nevada. Please remember that Ruskin dismissed Rembrandt as, quote, vulgar and dull, and that Tartini's violin shattered in its case upon his death. That is it for now. Thanks again to Bickman Nguyen. Uh, go get her novel, Pioneer Girl. It's out there uh, waiting for you. And uh, thanks to you guys for listening. I appreciate it. I've had fun. I always have fun uh, talking to you via this microphone, uh, you know, from a, a distance. Everything happens from a distance in my life. I'm talking into this microphone, which is then making its way into your ears, presumably through earbuds, though perhaps through speakers and then the air. But there is an intimacy to this, which belies the fact that I am in a uh, small room with a laptop computer and a microphone. I feel like I just got sensitive at the end. <laughs> <laughs>